People have been turning toward false gods and temporary treasures for centuries. There's nothing new under the sun. And Moses' warning was just as appropriate in Jesus' day as Jesus' warning is appropriate in our day and so on. And so putting your hope in money to give you true pleasure, to give you true security, to give you true status, to give you true success is as foolish an investment as it would be to put all of your money, to invest all of your money in aluminum. Aluminum. Now, there was a time um, 100 200 years ago, I don't know, when aluminum actually was a very good investment uh, because it was considered quite rare. It was incredibly difficult uh, to extract pure aluminum from its ore. Uh, they hadn't developed the, the, the process to do that yet. And so there was a time when aluminum was actually more expensive than gold, pure aluminum. Uh, Listen to Tom Geller. He wrote an article called Aluminum, Common Metal, Uncommon Past. Uh, He said in the mid-1800s, aluminum was more valuable than gold. Napoleon III's most important guests were given aluminum cutlery, like aluminum, you know, knife and fork and dessert spoon and soup spoon and other spoon and get another spoon and a, a third spoon, who knows, um, and while the, uh, those less worthy guests, you know, they dined with mere silver. And, uh, and fashionable and wealthy women wore jewelry crafted of, of pure aluminum. Um, when, the, when the Washington Monument was finished, I think it was in 1884, you know, they built that big obelisk in, uh, on the downtown mall, and they... they capped it, the tip of the Washington Monument needed to be um, sort of a lightning rod. And do you know what they used to cap the top of the Washington Monument? It's a six-pound pyramid of pure aluminum in 1884 because that was considered pretty sweet, really nice. Like that little pyramid of aluminum before the ceremony to put it on the tip of the Washington Monument. Do you know where that little six-pound pyramid of aluminum was, was on display? Do you know where people gathered around to go, oh, it's so beautiful. Can I touch it? No, you can't touch it. It's too precious. Do you know where it was? Tiffany's on Madison Avenue. Tiffany's. When Disneyland opened in 1955, Michael told me this. When Disneyland opened in 1955, uh, they had Tomorrowland, like the place that's going to show you the future. They had this whole exhibit on the power and the value of aluminum. Do you know what aluminum is worth these days? Do you know what you, you, know what you have to shell out for a pound of aluminum? One dollar. That's how much it's gone down in value. Your investment in aluminum at one point was worth more than gold. You know, it seemed like pretty good stuff. Worth a dollar for a pound of it now. Compared to gold, one ounce of gold is $1,300 today. One ounce of, of silver, one ounce of silver is worth $16 an ounce, and one pound of aluminum is worth $1 a 
I happen to have uh, a gold nugget. This is a five-pound gold nugget that Charlie and Larry dug out of our backyard um, yesterday. It's like, wow, that's really remarkable timing. I really, I needed a five-pound gold nugget, and they just dug this up. Um, do you know what this is worth? This is worth over ten, a hundred thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars a pound. It's a pretty good investment, right? Certainly better than aluminum. But if, if we, we have to be careful, right? Because lest we somehow end up believing that, oh, well, yeah, aluminum would have been a bad thing to sort of circle your life around and go all in on. Gold is much, much more secure. Do you realize that a day is coming in the kingdom of God when the value of gold will be on par with the contemporary value of aluminum? Almost worthless. In Revelation, they tell us that gold, while still beautiful, will become so common and so ordinary that they're going to use it like asphalt. They're going to pave the streets with it. And who knows, maybe we'll be drinking our sodas out of it. Somebody recycle that, please. Anyway, don't get wrecked investing in false treasure. Go all in on what is truly valuable. Jesus, in verse 22, said the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light, meaning that if your eyes are clear and if you can discern reality for what it is, rather than sort of being clouded and shrouded and, you know, misdirected, then you are healthy. Your soul is healthy. Your eyes are healthy. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if you can't discern what's real, if you don't know what's truly valuable, oh, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How sad, how bad is it when the light of our eyes fixates on temporary treasures rather than true treasures? Is God your treasure? Is God your gold? Is he the center of your wealth? Is he what you value more than anything else? This is Jesus' appeal to us, to get true joy, true security, true success, true status through Jesus. So your treasure is something, and your treasure is somewhere, according to Christ, He says in verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I mean, that's foolish, right? Because moth and rust or worms are going to destroy them. Thieves can break in and steal them. Where do people put what's valuable to them? Well, they put it in someplace safe, like a safety deposit box at the credit union. Or they'll put it in the stock market, which may or may not be safe. Or they'll stick it under their mattress. Or they'll put it in a mason jar and screw that lid on really, really tight. And they'll bury it in the backyard where Charlie and Larry will dig it back up again and bring it to me. All right, so that's what you do because people don't want to lose their treasure. People don't want to lose what's valuable to them. And Jesus says, I've got a much better idea. Put your treasure in a place where nothing can harm it. Put your treasure in a place where nothing, nobody can take it from you. Put it in some place that's eternally secure. Uh, I like what Randy Alcorn describes. I mean, it seems obvious, but just just hear him because you go, oh, yeah, 
He wrote a little book called The Treasure Principle, and he says, consider what Jesus is saying. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why not? Because earthly treasures are bad? No. Because they won't last. They're currency to get what is your true treasure. So don't put your hope in what is temporary. Um, There was a time when a young man, he was rich, wealthy, powerful, influential, um, in our day, he would have made Forbes' list of, you know, um, 30 under 30, like the wealthiest of the young and upcoming entrepreneurs and so on. And this rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, look, I, I, I want to make sure I've got all of my, you know, ducks in a row and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wealthy and I'm successful. How can I be sure that I'm successful in God's eyes? And Jesus kind of said, well, here's the law. Here are the commandments. Do the commandments. And then this young man said to him, all these I have kept, but what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, well, all right, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. And then follow me. The young man heard this, but he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So according to Jesus, the man's problem wasn't his possessions. It was where he was keeping them. He thought he could have worldly possessions and keep them safe in this world, but but you can't. He didn't have his possessions, his real wealth in the right place. It wasn't in heaven. And Jesus is saying, you need to pursue the right wealth. Jesus is kind of being his investment advisor, his wealth manager at this point. And you've got to diversify this portfolio. You need to switch over to a heavenly portfolio. And Jesus is appealing him to really get true treasure. Uh, Randy Alcorn continues, but when Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost, it's because wealth will always, always, always be lost. Either it leaves us while we live, or we leave it when, it, when we die. It will always be lost. So Jesus is speaking some common sense to us. Where is your true treasure? Do you have true treasure? Do you have what we could describe as gospel gold? Um, so Paul was one of uh, the, uh, you know, he received apostleship from the risen Jesus. And, and just like his master, he sort of gives the same, uh, the, the same uh, outline for us. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation treasure for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, so that they, in another way of saying it, can have true treasure. So that's what Paul is saying to those who are rich. Store up more treasure for yourself in the place that your treasure cannot be touched, in heaven. And you invest in those treasures by investing on earth and doing good deeds, sharing with those who are poor, using your money as currency to get what is truly going to build your wealth in, in heaven's eyes. So Paul's making this, this appeal you know, that Jesus made, same one. And over and over again, we hear the gospel calling us to get, you know, true pleasure. 
Isn't that what the Psalms call us to do? Psalm 16 says, look, in your presence is fullness of joy. There are eternal pleasures at your right hand. God, you are our true treasure. But through the gospel, we get real, true status. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 8 that the Spirit confirms that we are God's children. And if we are his children, then we are also heirs, heirs with God to this eternal inheritance. So like when you think of status and you think about the people who we look up to, we, we look up to, you know, bosses and power brokers and, you know, we look up to celebrities or just these are the people that seem to have a lot of, you know, cultural currency. Well, who, who, are, who has the most status? Inevitably, those are, that's royalty. It's a whole different category of people the kings and the queens and then the sons and daughters of the royal, you know, house. They're the princes and the princesses. They have the most status, and that is what you are in God's eyes. Sons and daughters of royalty. And you have true status through the gospel. You have true success through the gospel. Um, The apostle John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You are a winner and a conqueror. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Well, what kind of faith? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That kind of faith. And that gives us ultimately true security because Paul asks again and again all throughout Romans 8, like, you know, who ultimately, who, what, How can anything separate us, divide us, take away from us the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus? We are ultimately truly secure in the gospel. And all this comes to us through the merit and the the ministry of the one who, even though he was rich, you know, you think of heaven's riches, even though he was rich beyond all splendor, he came to us, he became poor for our sakes. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And that is what he did on the cross. Is that he entered into our poverty. I mean, he didn't just come to earth and experience you know, material poverty. He went to a cross where he experienced our soul's poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy. And he took that on himself becoming absolutely worthless in God's eyes. That's what sin does to us. And he experienced that hell of separation from his father and that abs- being, being devoid of anything good as he became a curse for us in our place. And then in exchange for taking on our spiritual bankruptcy, he gives us all of his riches the riches of status, the riches of his pleasure, the riches of his success, the riches of his security in our Father's eyes. And he rose from the dead and guarantees our inheritance with him in Christ. Everybody who has faith in Jesus to do that has gospel gold. You are secure in him. And your wealth can never be taken away. And then we are freed to use this world's currency to to grow that, that, that uh, portfolio, so to speak, 
Uh, I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, when you see him, that is Jesus, dying to make you his treasure, that will make him your treasure. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security, and you will want to bless others with what you have. So one way to think about it is this way. We, we use our, um, our catechism. It's an old-fashioned you know, question and answer format to, to help us grow as disciples in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question, right out of the chute, says, what is our chief end? What are we here for? Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do you know that that is the same chief end that God has purposed for money? Money's chief end is to glorify God and to help people enjoy him forever. Let me give you three concrete ways that this, ha- that this works, and then uh, we're going to conclude. And they might not make sense initially, but I hope, I hope we're going to see go, oh, yeah, it does work. Today, all across our country, churches are gathering and we're observing and praying for the unborn because it is the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Uh, I think it's always the third Sunday in, in January, um, going back to President Reagan. And what that means is that this is a day when we're, we're observing the fact that, um, what is it, 46 years ago, right, the Supreme Court said that a, that abortion is legal. It has legal protection, this, this uh, quote, right for a person to destroy the, the baby growing inside of her. And now here we are, 46 years later, and conservative estimates are 60 million lives later. 60 million babies that have been forcefully and willfully taken. Like, why? Why do people get abortions? Why do people advocate for abortion? Some of you have a personal experience with that question. Some of you have had abortions, and some of you have advocated for an abortion, and that's a part of your story. I want to make something incredibly clear if you're in any way fuzzy about this. When Jesus died on that cross, he was taking our place, taking on himself our spiritual bankruptcy, our shame, our guilt, our selfishness, our dirt, and then giving to us and exchanging that with forgiveness, innocence, grace. And if 
you have trusted in Christ, if you're believing in him, then some things are true for you. No matter what you did or decided in the past, some things are true about you. You're whole. You're forgiven. You're clean. You have a hope and a future. If you've struggled to look at your past and see anything beyond just hopelessness and guilt and remorse and doubt and shame and self-hatred and an inability to see God, then you need to see Jesus for what he truly did. Standing in our place and giving us grace. So maybe you have a personal answer to that question, why, why do people get abortions? Or why do people advocate for abortions? But I wanna run down a list that was compiled by the Guttmacher Institute. It's an organization that's actually uh, abortion-friendly. Uh, Planned Parenthood uses their, their statistics and their studies, and so I just want you to know these numbers, if anything, are skewed like, toward that end of the spectrum rather than the opposite. And according to this study of thousands of, of post-abortive women, uh, less than half a percent of them got their abortion because they were a victim of rape. Less than half a percent. And less than 1% of them pursued abortion because their life, truly their life was at risk. And so just to be clear, we're talking about less than 1.5% of abortions happen because either the mother's life is at stake or because of rape. Now, what about the rest of the reasons? I won't go through all of them, but 7% and it, um, said, all right, so fetal or maternal health was at risk. And let's just read between the lines there. That meant that Maybe there was some kind of DNA testing in, in utero and uh, it was discovered that the child had Downs. Yeah, we're going to terminate that pregnancy. D Downs is not a health risk. Um, or maybe the mom was, you know, had some kind of risk of uh, um, you know, gestational diabetes or something like that. And we're just not talking about anything that can't be overcome. But then you get to 23% so that they couldn't afford a child. And another 24% said they weren't ready for a child. Read between the lines there. You know, they are still in high school. They need to get their degree. They need to get a job. They need to kind of get on their feet. They need to get, get you know, their lives together and so on. And, and so you see that 47%, nearly half of those reasons for why these folks got abortions or pursued abortions or advocated for abortions really kind of, kind of came down to some financial questions that had to do with maybe my life is not going to be as comfortable or as good as I thought it was going to be. And don't lose sight of the fact that the abortion business, the, the whole infrastructure is a business with a capital B. It is a billion dollar business, an industry. We're sure there are true believers in a woman's right, you know, to reproductive rights in whatever ways they want to phrase that. But let's not, let's not uh, be naive. There's a lot of money to be made. What? would those numbers look like 
if there were more people in the United States who understood what our true treasure really is. That life is not comprised of the pursuit of possessions and the consumption of things. But life is found in Jesus who gives us true pleasure, true success, true security, etc. What would those numbers be like if we really understood that? Let me move on to a second example. So, you know, if we have true treasure, then that means that we're going to be promoting life, true life. And if we really understand what true treasure is, then we're also going to be promoting not just life, but dignity. Dignity. Now, um, a year ago, almost uh, a year ago yesterday, uh, President Trump made this declaration at, uh, I believe, the, right, uh, the March for Life. He said, we observe National Sanctity of Human Life Day to affirm the truth that all life is sacred, that every person has inherent dignity and worth, and that no class of people should ever be discarded as non-human. And I commend our president for such a clear, life-affirming statement. The statement not only applies to the unborn and to the aged, but to all people, regardless of their ethnicity or their so-called race, right? So um, no class, no, no color of people should ever be regarded as non-human. The truth is there's only one race of people. It's the human race, and we're all made in the image of God. We just have different hues, different colors. We're just sort of mosaic of humanity all coming together eternally around the throne to praise him in this eternal harmony. And woe to us who discard anybody as non-human because of the color of their skin. So tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a national holiday, right? And it's a good day for us to reflect and remember we've made good strides as a society. There's been good healing. But there's also a day to be real and to assess rightly that we've got a long way to go. We can even grieve that we haven't come far enough. I want you to listen to this summary from the Pew Research Center. This is three years ago, 2016, a combination of all of their research shows that analyses of federal government data by the Pew Research Center find that blacks, on average, are at least twice as likely as whites to be poor or to be unemployed. Households headed by a black person earn, on average, little more than half of what the average white household earns. And in terms of their median net worth, white households are about 13 times as wealthy as black households, a gap that has grown wider since 2008, the Great Recession. How might these numbers change if people, white people, knew our true treasure was in heaven. How might history have been different, the history of slavery and racism in our country, how might it have been different if white society and white economy had not treated the black community as a commodity to be exploited, 
but instead brothers and sisters who we come alongside and we say, how can we flourish together? Those numbers would be remarkably different as a result of understanding true treasure. True treasure, the biblical gospel gold that Jesus offers us. Last, uh, last point to think about is, uh, is we've got one more thing that we're kind of layering on uh, this weekend. And uh, two years ago, Tabernacle launched into this stewardship campaign because we were realizing we were sort of bottlenecked with our budget. We're spending a lot of money on this building. Um, and this has been a wonderful tool for ministry. It's enabled us to reach far more people in Waynesboro than we could have before we expanded. But we were sort of plateaued. Um, you know, we were spending a lot of money on mortgage and um, our principal and interest. So we, we said, all right, let's do something about that. Let's start this campaign. And we want to do uh, more with those resources. And because we are growing in our understanding of what true treasure is, what true gospel gold is all about, something really remarkable has happened in the past two years. In the past two years, Tabernacle's operating budget has grown. I think by five, uh, 3% and, by, and, and we're scheduled for a 5% increase for 2019. It's, it's, it's grown. I want, to, I want that to be clear. All at the same time, while in the past two years, our mortgage went from $750,000 to where it currently is at $245,500. It has dropped by two thirds in two years because of the generous, sacrificial, joyful gifts of the saints here at Tabernacle. That money didn't come from outside. It came from you all. And that's a remarkable thing. What that says, it's, that's concrete examples of people saying, you know what, I'm not going to hold on to worldly wealth. I'm not going to find life in this. I can't take it with me. Let's invest it in some place that's going to enable the church to do more ministry more missions, more mercy, and, and more multiplication. And we want to continue to see that grow. Wouldn't it be amazing for us to get to the end of this year, the end of 2019, and be completely debt-free? In, in addition to the gifts that have come in the past two years, we have commitments that um, you know, are for 2019 that are scheduled to take us all the way up, almost, almost, to the end, we're gonna, we've got this $27,000 gap before we're debt-free. And what we're asking you this season, right now in January up until February 10th, is uh, that if we could get every single person that calls Tabernacle home, this is your home church, if everybody could make a commitment of some kind, and you know, yes, there have been some large gifts that have really helped us gain momentum, but listen, the majority of the gifts have just been modest, but they've all been sacrificial and joyful. We're asking everybody that calls Tabernacle home to make some kind of sacrifice. Let it pinch in some way to help us do more ministry, missions, mercy, and multiplication. But please, do it joyfully. Don't do it under duress, don't do it under guilt, don't do it you know, with regret, because then that negativity is just gonna get projected onto your church, onto your church family. We don't want that. But we do want everybody to give something sacrificial and joyful. Uh, there's an, the other side of that home groups insert. We'll give you more information on the campaign, and, uh, and then in the foyer are these commitment cards. If, if you would like to, to consider 
making a gift that would get us debt-free by the end of, of this year. Uh, you can fill these out. These are confidential. There's only one person in our congregation that sees who gave and how much, and it's Raymond Kilmer, and he's a very trustworthy treasurer for our church. He's one of our deacons. I would trust him with my life. Um, and he's devilishly handsome, too. Um, and he's the only one that knows. So listen, we're not making a production out of this. There's no bricks with your name on it. There's no you know, wing with somebody's name on it. None of that mess. Just you and Jesus. How can you make concrete your belief that your treasure's in heaven and make some kind of joyful sacrifice? It doesn't matter the number. The heart is what matters. So please join us and do that. Make it, make it concrete. That's your application. And uh, we'll give thanks uh, for these coming in by February 10th. Um, I'm out of time. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to grasp better and, and, and more profoundly the height and width and length and depth of your love for us and the true value of the treasure that we have in heaven, the, the gold of the gospel, the, the, the joy and the wealth of knowing you and being known by you, where we get true eternal status and pleasure and success and security. Uh, thank you for these gifts that are completely free through Jesus. And I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't have that wealth, that doesn't have that true treasure, please uh, just connect the dots in their mind and in their soul to, to trust in Jesus and to see him as their all in all. Help us be more and more increasingly satisfied in Jesus. Help us be uh, better stewards of everything that you've given us. Help us to, to use this, this currency of, that the world offers us uh, to see greater, uh, greater good, greater blessing come to this world. And Lord, thank you for our worship together this morning. Please bless us as we continue. In Jesus' name, amen.